Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to every practice of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each, of a, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for you are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let them labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you were to all of a sudden come into $2 billion, do you think your life would change a little bit? Uh, you know, some people say, I wouldn't change. Um, okay, go back to the message last week online. Um, <laughs> if you came into $2 billion, your life would probably change in some ways. At least um, I think about this guy, Edwin Castro. Most of you don't probably know his name, but in November, he was the one who won the $2.03 billion Powerball Lotto here in California. So in November, this man won $2.03 billion. It, just in an instant, his life changed. After taxes, it's probably, oh, a rough $1 billion. Uh, and he was in the news because just last month, he made a purchase that at least people found out about. He purchased a $25.5 million home in the Hollywood Hills. Now, I mean, if you have a billion dollars, 25 million is like nothing, right? And so, but he, but he makes this purchase. Why was Edwin Castro able to make that purchase? Uh, he had received something. I mean, he had taken in over a billion dollars in lotto winnings, and so his life had changed. And him purchasing a $25 million home was, was him just simply coming and saying, yeah, my life's different. I'm in a different category now financially, and so I'm able to buy this home. And he was able to buy that home, and it really didn't hurt him in any way, shape, or, or form. All he was doing was just really living according to what his means were. And when I saw that story, I thought about how Edwin Castro just a year ago was in no way, shape, or form a millionaire, let alone a billionaire. But now that he is, he's able to live differently than he did before. And that story of what's happened to him is really, church, a picture of what we have been seeing in the book of Ephesians where we find ourselves. Where we find ourselves in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, is where the Apostle Paul is coming, inspired by God, and he's, he's speaking to a church, he's speaking to a group of people, and he's saying, I want you to know you have received all of this from God. He has done all of these things for you. Your life has been radically changed and transformed because you've gone from death to life. 
You've gone from poverty to the riches of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 4 and following, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, now because you have been transformed, because of what you have received, you're called to put this new life on display. And that's one of the most beautiful things to me about the Christian life and about Christianity is that Christianity is not a religion in the sense that other people think about religion. The thing that people get wrong about Christianity is that it's a rules of do's and don'ts. And that when you come to a passage like we see in Ephesians chapter 4, if you don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, you read Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, and about these things that we are to be and these things that we are to do, and you would read those as a list of do's and don'ts, not realizing that the only reason why we are called to do these things and to live this way is because of what we've already received. Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 is God coming and saying, because of what you have received, here's what you display. We don't live these ways. We don't do these things so that God would love and accept us. The heart of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ is, as we heard and sung earlier, that God came into the world to save sinners, to transform sinners, not to come into the world to tell sinners, here's how you should live so that you can be transformed. Here's how you can live so that you can be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not what? perish, but then have what? Eternal life or everlasting life. And that's just not a future in heaven. He's talking about the life we were created to live. And so the beautiful thing about Ephesians chapter 4 in our passage this morning is that God is coming to us and he's saying, hey, look, this is what it looks like to put on display and to live out the riches that you have received. Edwin Castro bought a home for $25 million because he was just putting on display what he already had. We are coming this morning, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, and we're looking specifically at verse, verse 28 to see one more element of, of putting on display what we've already received. The last week, we looked at two of the things that we put on display, just as by quick review. He says, listen, if you've been transformed and you have new life in Jesus, number one, we speak truthfully and we don't lie to one another. Like truth-telling is, is who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We, we don't lie because we walk in the truth as he's in the truth. And then the second thing we saw in verses 26 and 27 is, is that it said, be angry but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. And the, the heart of that message was that we have emotions and feelings, every human being does, but we're not controlled by them. We're not controlled by our feelings and our emotions. We have feelings and emotions, but we submit them to God and to his, to his word. And, and rather than being controlled by our emotions, our feelings, we're controlled by the Spirit. And so those are the first two things that Paul says we put on display because of our changed lives. But now here in verse 28, we come to something else. And what's really interesting to me about this verse, verse 28, is it reminds me of an experience that Cece and I had actually just a few days ago. My youngest daughter and I, we went on this hike, and, and shockingly, there's water in California right now. And we went on this hike, and there were actually waterfalls that we got to see. And, and so, we're, so we're hiking, and we're going. And we came to this one place where we had to cross a stream. And because of the way that the sun was reflecting upon the water, you couldn't really tell its depth. And, and so as you looked at it, it didn't look like it was really that deep. But having, you know, some wisdom in this little mind of my brain, you know, I said, let me just test the depths of that before we just step right into it. And sure enough, that little stream would have been a lot deeper than I thought. It wouldn't have been just up to my shoes. It would have been up past my calf. And for Cece, it would have been up to her waist, basically. And, and so, I, so I, this thing that at first seemed rather shallow was actually very deep. 
And when we come to Ephesians chapter 8, on the surface, for most of us, it seems kind of like a shallow, seems like an obvious kind of verse. We're going to plumb its depths today, and you're going to see it touches on things, and it touches on aspects of our lives that go far deeper and are far more profound than we might first realize. So what is the verse? Let's read it here. It's verse 28. It says this. I'm going to read it in its totality, and then we're going to break it in parts. It says, let the thief... Steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We're going through here this list of things that Paul says we put on display as those who have been renewed in Jesus Christ. And this verse starts, like all the other verses, with a very straightforward command. Those first, that first phrase, it says, let the thief, what? Steal no longer. Now, this is actually a command. It's in the imperative. In the English, though, it kind of has, uh, it loses a little bit of its command force, if you will, because that word let, right? Let the thief steal no longer. It's kind of like, you know, let the kids go out and play, you know? It, it, it seems more like a suggestion. This isn't a suggestion by Paul. <laughs> it's literally a command. And the command is, is very simple. Thieves steal no more. If you were a thief, you, you don't steal anymore. You're, you're no longer a thief. In fact, fun fact, the Greek word here for thief, the noun for thief, and the Greek verb here for steal are, are forms of the same word, and it's the word klepto. Have you ever heard that word before? Where it's where we get kleptomaniac, right? It's someone who has a problem with stealing. And so let the, you know, basically, so let the klepto no longer klepto, okay? That's what it's saying. Let the thief steal no more. Now, church, what is stealing at its most basic level? Like, if we're going to understand this and really break it down, like, what does it mean to steal? I, I would propose a simple way of thinking about this, to, to take another person's property without permission or right. This whole section is going to be about stealing versus working. And, and we're focusing first here on the command here, no longer steal. And what does it mean to steal? I, I think at the most basic level, it's to take another person's property without permission or right. And so this verse begins by telling us, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not take what belongs to others and keep it and use it as your own. At a basic level, this, we just, we don't do this. This isn't who we are. Now, does this command, does this calling that if you follow Jesus Christ, you do not steal, does this surprise anyone? Does anyone here today like, I had no idea that stealing went against Christianity. It goes against many religions. And we know this because in the Ten Commandments, we discover that stealing violates God's command. Stealing violates God's command. From the earliest pages of the scriptures, we see that God condemns stealing. Taking from another person without permission, it's not what God would have us do. Deuteronomy 5, 19 says, and you shall not steal, part of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 15, again, the restatement of the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. Stealing goes against what God has called us to be and do and how to live in the world. Have you ever considered, though, that the command not to steal actually predates the Ten Commandments? Have you ever thought for a moment that actually one of the first sins ever committed by humanity was the sin of stealing? 
when Adam and Eve were created and they were in the garden, God said to them, you can eat of any of the trees in the garden. I've given this, all this for you. But of this tree, you shall not, what? Eat. He's saying everything here is available to you, but not this. And what did Adam and Eve do? They took of the fruit and they ate it. The thing that God said was not available to you. The thing that God said is not yours. Now, I'm not getting to the motivation of why they did it. I'm just saying that they took and they ate, which God says was not available to them. Does that sound like stealing? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so the command and the understanding that stealing is wrong goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And it's going to be interesting that we're going to see in just a little bit that also the, the idea of the opposite of stealing, which is to work, also goes back to the Garden of Eden. But not only have you considered that it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, but there's another reason why stealing ultimately is, is wrong and why God commands us against it, and that is stealing is, at its core, a selfish act. We're not called here to no longer steal just because God's word commands us not to, although that should be enough. Stealing at its core is a selfish act. Stealing is driven by selfish desires, and that is not something that if you are in Jesus Christ, we already saw earlier in chapter 4, we're controlled by. A desire to satisfy self is something that when Christ saves you and transforms you, you are freed from. He died so that we would no longer live for ourselves. So we're freed from this self-focus. Listen, when we take, we take because we want what someone else has. It's coveting. We take because we want what we can't afford. We take because we can afford the thing we want, but we do not want to give up what we have in order to obtain it. We take because we believe that we deserve something that we were not given. We take, we take, and we take because we are trying to get things that we want, that we desire, and we're not willing to do it in the proper way. In fact, we also withhold what we owe someone, which is also stealing. And, and it's all because of this self-focus, this selfishness. And so why is it that Paul comes and says, let the thief steal no longer. Well, number one, it goes against the commands of God. Number two, <clears throat> it's not who we are anymore. We are not a people who are driven by our selfish desires. We've been, we've been freed from that. One of the crazy things about the act of stealing from someone is that we will do it even when we know the impact it might have on another person. Like if you want to know the depths of a person's selfishness, Look at what they take from someone, even when they know the impact that that might have on, on them. Now, like with lying, do most of us consider ourselves to be thieves? Do most of us think that we struggle with, here's a bust, thievery. When was the last time you, you used that word? Do, do most of us feel like we are takers? Uh, I had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who's in law enforcement, and and in the city where he works, they had this special task force a little while back where they were, uh, went to the mall in that city. 
and they had a task force of about 16 people who were undercover. And just on a random Tuesday for eight hours, they were there in this mall, and they were looking <clears throat> to ultimately curb the shoplifting that had been happening in uh, that mall. And in an eight-hour period, they caught 10 people for shoplifting. In an eight-hour period, they caught 10 people for shoplifting. And, and so he shared with me that story, and I said, you want to know about the moral degradation of society, that that many people on a random Tuesday went to a mall in, in a rather affluent area, and they stole from these stores. I began to probe a little bit deeper and began to look at some of the statistics that the US, U.S. Commerce put out. And I'm telling you, it is absolutely staggering. By their estimates, as far as we can tell, in the last five years, are you ready for this? 10 million people have been caught shoplifting. 10 million people have been caught. U.S. Department of Commerce says that one in 11 people have shoplifted in their life. So let's see, out of this groove, out of this groove. <clears throat> it has, it, it's cost somewhere around $2 billion annually from shoplifting. Now, that's people who go into a store and shoplift. But you know that $10 billion a year is stolen from stores and offices by the people that work there. $10 billion. We think the people going into the stores are, are the problem. It's the people who actually work in the stores, work in the offices, that estimates put it at about $10 billion. There, that's like the most blatant ways that people steal, right? And, 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 and so like, in, in church, what I want us to think about is that the taking, it's ultimately this self-driven action, this selfish desire. There's something that I want. I don't want to pay for it, so I'm going to take it by this, this means. And, and shoplifting is a pretty blatant way of, of stealing. But are there other ways that we steal? Are there things that we do in our day-to-day -day lives that, that are a dishonest way of going about getting something? Withholding from somebody something that you owe them is theft. The way that we use our time, we can rob our employers. And so while we might look at ourselves and we might say, listen, I'm not a, I'm not a thief like Paul says here. Do you seek to obtain things driven by a selfish desire? and doing it in a way that goes against what God has prescribed. Paul comes and says, this is not who you are. We are not a people who are driven by our selfish desires and obtain the things in our lives in ways that go contrary to God's word. He talked last week about how we're not controlled by our emotions and our feelings, and so too, we're not ruled by our selfish desires. He says, we are not takers. If you're a taker, you don't take anymore. In fact, look at what the text goes on to say. Instead of being a people who obtain things in the wrong way, motivated to do so by selfish desires, verse 28 goes on, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him what? 
labor, doing honest work with his own hands. There is a right way and a wrong way to obtain the things that we have. And if you're someone who's been made new in Jesus Christ, this text says that there is a right way to go about it. And the text goes on to say there's actually a right desire that that Christ produces in you for obtaining the things that you want. The wrong way to go about getting the things that we have is to take what others have. The right way to go about getting the things that we need or desire, according to this verse, is that we do what? We work. We work. When Paul says we are to be a, a working people, he's not telling us that because working is, is the opposite of stealing, Working isn't just the opposite of stealing. Working is actually a God-ordained way in which we have been designed to function in the world. Consider this. When we work, we display God's image. We display God's image when we work. That's why Paul says, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. It's because that's how we display the image of God. We work. Every human being that was ever created, you know this church, was created as an image bearer of God. That means to serve as a mirror, to reflect his character and his nature to the world around us. That creation and other people who have been created would look at us and say, I wonder what the God who made all this is like. God says, look no further than to the people that I've created. Now, sadly, because humanity sinned and they took what they weren't supposed to, that image has been marred, it's been corrupted. But God says, remember that when you were first created, you were created to, to reflect my image and to reflect my, my nature. And here's the truth, church, our God is a God who works. Do you know that? Our God is a God, why do we work? Why is it that we don't steal to obtain things, but we work to obtain things? It's because our God is a God who works. When you read the first pages of the book of Genesis, you discover in Genesis 1 and 2, God working. I love this passage. Look at this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. It says, on the seventh day, God finished his, what? Work. That he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his, what? Work that he had done. Tied to the very character and nature of God, which we are supposed to display as his image bearers, is this idea that we work. Because our God is a God who works. And in the Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in, it does something really fascinating. The very word that's used to describe the work that God does was the Hebrew word that was used to convey the common work of everyday man. Isn't that interesting? The work that God did in creation is not this high mystical word for work it's just the word that was used to describe the day laborer at his work. God is a God who works. And he rested, it says, from his, his work. But not only does Genesis reveal that God works, look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? Work it and keep it. The same word that's used to describe God working is the same word that's used to describe how God created Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden and he puts them in the garden to work it and keep it. Church, God ordained work for humanity. Why do we no longer steal, but why are we a people who, who work? 
Because stealing, it's, it's not the way that God has designed us to obtain things. Instead, working is the way that God has created us to obtain things. It's God's ordained way for us to live in the world. In fact, that word for work it in Genesis 2.15, like I said, it's the same word that describes this act of service. And we're called to work it and to keep it. Something that's notable about this passage is that Genesis 2.15, and God creating us, in his image, in God putting us in the garden to work, all of this takes place before the fall. You and I were created to work. In fact, I would say that humanity is in the pocket, if you will, that we are functioning our best, not when we're just purely consuming. When we as a society, when all we do is consume, and bring in for ourselves, we're actually going against our design. We were created to be a people who work. And this is where I want to be as clear as day. Work is not a curse. Can I get an amen to that? (laughs) Work's not a curse because work was ordained for you and for me before sin entered into the world. Can work feel like a curse? Amen. You know, that's what we're going to say. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But I want us to understand that the idea of working for things and engaging in work is not a curse. It's actually a way that we reflect whose image we were made in. We were created to work. Work is not a bad thing, but work can become a bad thing in two ways. The first way that work can become a bad thing is when you and I make work the main thing. Work is a way that we reflect God's image. Work isn't a way that we build up our image. Do you understand what I'm saying there? A lot of people look to their work as a way of creating an identity for themselves. And when you take work and you use it to ultimately esteem yourself or to build up your own kingdom, you're going against God's design because work isn't about making much of you. Your work is the way in which you can show off God to others. Now, why is work such a toil and a struggle? Now, that's because of sin, (laughs) In fact, when sin entered into the world, God said, now listen, one of the consequences of your disobedience is that work will become a a struggle. It will become a, a toil. This is where all the more we need the new life that Jesus Christ gives us so so that we can make it through our work. But if we go into our work thinking, ah, work, you know what? That's not the way we were created to be. No, that's where we were created to be. I find something interesting. A, a pastor one time said, said this, when we think about work and it being a curse, and when we think about whether or not some work is even better than other work as far as displaying God's image, this pastor, Philip Jensen, he's put it this way. He said, when you think about it, if God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman, but how does the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible, come into the world? As a carpenter. 
the most menial, if you will, the most basic within society occupation. Jesus Christ, when he comes, doesn't come as a statesman or as a philosopher in academia. He comes as a carpenter. That's his job. That's what he engaged in. Now, why do I share that story with you? Because when we think about work, sometimes today, the other problem we can have with work is like, oh, that work is more meaningful. That work over there is more important. I can't be fulfilled in my life unless I'm doing this kind of work. All of those things are lies. All of those things are lies. Because when you come to the rest of the scripture, when you are transformed in Jesus Christ, we discover passages like Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do as heartily unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. I'm sorry, and that was 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. We are able to do all that we do to the glory of God, including our work. And so one of the things I want to dispel us from is this idea that, you know what? Whether you're a carpenter, a teacher, a doctor, a, a, a dentist, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, if you are engaged in work, any of those occupations, when done in the right way, are able to manifest the glory of God. And in today's world, we've done a disservice, I think, to many young people by giving them this idea that if you gotta find your ultimate occupation, you gotta find your passion, and you gotta live for your passion, and you gotta make your work the thing, and, and it's, that's, that's, that's a lie. If you're trying to find an occupation or a work that you're going to be passionate about, then what you've fallen into is this trap. I'm not saying that you can't be passionate about the things that you do, but if you believe that you find something and you're passionate about it, that that will ultimately satisfy you, you're not reading the scriptures. You're not understanding that, that, that God has created us to work, and while it's wonderful to find a job that can be in which you, you're passionate about it, anything you do can be a manifestation of bringing God glory. And I was reminded of this right after my car accident. As I was sitting by, you know, standing by the roadside, still a little bit of shock, uh, the tow truck driver comes up. This guy didn't know me from Adam. And he pulls up and he sees the accident and he sees me standing there. He says, oh, is this your car? I said, yeah. And he said, you know, oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry that this, this happened to you. I said, oh, no, I appreciate that. He said, you know, these are really, really difficult things. He says, but I want you to know, I, I believe, and, and I hope that you would believe this too, that, that everything happens for a reason. You know, I don't think that there's any mistakes in the, in the things that, that happen. And, and uh, I'm like, oh, no, this guy's going to start evangelizing to me. And, and, and I'm, listen, all right, can we just be really honest with one another for a minute? Like, I'm a little bit in shock right now. Like, and, and, and I preach, I was very kind. Hannah, was, Hannah, where are you? Was I kind to the guy? Yes, I was. Okay. So, so I stood there and listened. Um, and, and, he, and he went on to just, he just share. He's like, you know, you take these as an opportunity to reevaluate what's, in, what's important in, in life, you know, and is there something that God is trying to show us? And, and you know, there's a great opportunity even in these tragedies and, and things like this. And I was just kind of nodding and, and smiling. And while at the end of the day, you know, I, 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 just being honest, you know, I just, I smiled. Thank you for that, really. I was just like, I don't want this conversation to go on. I'm in shock. I want to just get out of here kind of thing. But I walked away from that conversation. I thought, here's a tow truck driver who saw his work as an opportunity 
to minister. Um, a, a friend of mine um, it was in this occupation where people come to him and, and, and the things that he does, he, he has to help them with problems that they have and he services their needs. And, and I joked with him and I said, you know, you have a great opportunity in your occupation that every time somebody comes in because of the problem that they have, you can say, you know, the reason for your problem is ultimately sin, but Jesus brought somebody into the world in order to help us with our problems. And he, he's like, I'd probably lose customers. I said, yeah. But nonetheless, even like that tow truck driver did, do we view our work as an opportunity to bring glory to God, to show love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? And so Paul says, we are created to work, and every job that we ultimately have is a way to do that. But, and, and church, here's where I think things get absolutely radical and crazy. Paul doesn't just simply come and say, you don't steal any longer, but you work. And, and we work because this is the way that God has created us to be. We obtain things in the right way, and the work is the way to do it. He goes further, and he says that if you're in Jesus Christ, because we have a new life in him, it doesn't just impact how we obtain things. It goes even further, and the text says, and it transforms how we think about why we obtain the things we even work for. Look at this in the text. So let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in what? Need. This verse is radical. Do you understand how radical this verse is? He says that the very purpose for why we who have been transformed by Jesus Christ actually work to obtain things is so that what? We might be able to share and to help those who have needs. Church, this goes contrary to what the world says. You work to obtain for yourself things that will allow you to be secure and to provide for all of your needs. And then if you have anything left over, then maybe you can help somebody out. But why do we work? What is the message of the world? You work so that you can be safe, so that you can be secure, so that you can have fun, so that you can provide for yourself and your family. Is that not the message of the world? Is the message of the world? You work so that you would have the ability to share with others. Have you ever heard that message proclaimed? And you know what? often Christians say, they say a little something different. They don't even say this. We will say we work because God has designed us to work and we work so that we can provide for our family and then we want to make sure that we are able to give something to the Lord and then when it's all said and done, we work and if there's others left over, then we can give to those in need. We only modify what the world says just a little bit, but Paul comes and says, if you've been transformed by Jesus Christ, you work because that's the way that God has ordained that you obtain things. But why do you work to obtain things? It's so that you would be generous. In fact, the entire message of what Paul says, and I waited all the way to the end to give you point three here, it's this. Paul is saying in this verse, we are not selfish, but generous. That's what the transformative work of Jesus Christ does. We are not selfish but generous and work to share with others in need. 
the motivation for why you work is not just so that you can obtain so that you would be safe and secure. Not so that you can build up your 401k so that you can retire at fill in the blank. You work because God has made you to work. And the things that you obtain, well, you obtain them so that you might be generous with others. Um, I'm not going to do it by a show of hands, but how many of you were raised to think that way? How many of you actually live life that way? I don't. I've been doing this for over 20 years. I've been a Christian almost my entire life. I have understood that we're called to be generous people and that the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us to be generous, but this is a whole other level of what God has transformed us to be. You see, why are we able to be this way and why is Paul saying, and it's not just Paul, I say that, but we know it's God speaking here. Why does God's word tell us that if you've been transformed by Jesus Christ, what we put on display is that we are not takers, but we're generous, and we do our work so that we might have stuff that we can share with others. It's because of this truth, and you already know it, and it's going to make complete sense. Are you ready? I see, I don't think you are. (laughs) This is why we're these types of people, is because Jesus Christ worked so that our need would be met. You want to know why we're a people who we work and obtain things so that we can share it with those in need? It's because that's what Jesus Christ did. For God so loved the world that he gave us, his one and only son, to save us. Jesus Christ, we're going to be celebrating it this Easter season, came into the world to save sinners who, as we heard The Apostle Paul say earlier, he was of the foremost. We're all the foremost of sinners. Our greatest need in the world is not to have food and covering and clothing, not even to have love and the affection of other people. It's to be spared from the wrath and judgment of God and to be separated from him for all eternity. Our greatest need could only be met by a work that we could never do. We needed someone outside of ourselves to be able to do a work that would provide what we needed, the forgiveness and grace to be restored into relationship with God. And so why did Jesus work? Why did he come down? Why did he die the death on the cross, live the perfect life that we should live? It was to meet our need. Jesus worked so that our need would be met. And so we work and obtain so that we could meet the needs of others. When we do this, we're modeling what Jesus Christ has already done for us. And if you have Jesus and your need in him has been met, can $2.03 billion satisfy? Some of you are like, yes. No, that's never going to meet your need. And so the beautiful thing that we have here is that when we work so that we help those in needs, we're modeling Jesus. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Joy is found in that. The more you work for yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to obtain security and provision for you, the more that is the focus of the life, the less you will enter into the joy of Jesus. You see, church, we know something that the world does not know. 
In fact, we know a number of things that the world does not know. We know that everything on earth belongs to God. Can I get an amen to that? How much on earth belongs to God? It's all his. We know that intellectually. And if that's true, it means that anything I have came from who? Him. But I worked for it. God gave it to you. And if everything that I have came from him and still belongs to him, it means we're stewards, we're not owners. You know the difference, church, right? We're stewards, we're not owners. So when I work to obtain something so that I can give to those who are in need, here's the beautiful thing. I'm not giving away anything that already belonged to me. In fact, even when we are generous and give to the church, and can I just say, let me just pause here for one second and just as a note, and I'm gonna wrap this up in just a second, but I gotta say these things. This church, it is a blessing to be a part of Valley Center Community Church and to be a part of this family where so many of you are indeed so generous in how you provide and give. And so I don't want to heap condemnation here on, on anybody, but, but I do want to say this is, this is revelatory. And this church family is a very generous church because I think the vast majority of people who are members here understand we are stewards and we're not owners. And how freeing that is because I can give to the Lord. By the way, God doesn't need your money. You know why? Because it's not your money. It's his already. <laughs> He's going to take it from you when you die. Not the government. It's all going back to him, Right? And so we know these things, and so, so we come to this, and we know that we do not have to cling and hold on to things, because at the end of the day, God will provide for all of us. He will be the one who provides. And are there Christians who die starving and impoverished here on earth? What's the answer? Yes, we don't believe in a health and wealth gospel. Just because Jesus saves you doesn't mean you won't suffer here. But the moment that they die, they enter into glory. <laughs> and they know riches and abundance beyond measure. And so church, one of the beautiful stories that I would invite you to go back and read after all of this, to just let you know that your pastor's not making things up, but to know that when you experience Jesus Christ, he transforms your life, is the story of a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus actually lived out this very principle that when you encounter Jesus, he transforms you. In fact, the story of Zacchaeus is a story that's true of all of us, and it's the last point here in your notes. Through Jesus Christ, you have been transformed from a burglar into a benefactor. <laughs> Do you know that about yourself? You've been transformed into, from a burglar into a benefactor. We're not takers, we're givers. We work so that we might obtain to give to those in need. Because Zacchaeus was the one who in Luke 19, 8 said this, after Jesus Christ entered into his life, said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So he's giving more than he's actually taken from people, that he's stolen from people. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the what? lost. You were lost and now you're found. And when you have been found by Jesus Christ, your life is transformed. You move from being a taker to a giver. It transforms how you think about work. Because in Jesus Christ, we have someone who worked to provide for our need. And so we become a people who, when we work, we look to provide for the needs of others.
sit on that, marinate on that, and it's only possible because of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, there's so much more depth to these truths than we could even really take in this morning. But my hope for all of us is that when we go into our work, maybe it's later today, maybe it's tomorrow, when we look at our bank accounts, when we look at the stock market, when we look at the things that we are working for and obtaining, that, Lord, a message like this would transform our thinking. Because, Lord, your word didn't change from when these were first written some 2,000 years ago. We are a people who, Lord, you have transformed. And because you have transformed us, we don't are longer motivated by our selfish desires. We don't need and more and more that our safety and security, it's not going to be found in anything that the world provides or our jobs provide. But instead, Lord, we look at our work as a way of reflecting you to the world. And we look at our work as a way of obtaining things so that we can share with others, Lord. You have taken us from being burglars to benefactors. Lord, that's our true condition. Now help us to actually live out Christ in this way. To the praise and glory of your name we ask it. And all God's people said, amen and amen.